Good morning. Lovely to see each one of you here, and it is a joy to um, share the Word of God with you this morning. Thank you to Alex for sort of giving me a platform to jump off of uh, with those uh, last songs. Um, I will glory in my Redeemer and speak, O Lord, um, because um, the subject uh, of my um, sermon today, um, as we've been in this, the series on what Christians pursue, is the pursuit of the glory of God. And we want to understand what it means to glory in our Redeemer, and what it means to glorify God, and how we are to live from day to day in that pursuit. Um, so, we'll be looking um, from Psalm 115. Sorry. It's the last um, message in um, this this series on what Christians pursue, and I praise God for really four, four and a half years of preaching from various passages on this subject, uh, various pursuits uh, that mark and characterize Christian living, uh, and I thought we'd, uh, we'd sort of um, close on, on this high of the pursuit of the glory of God, because truly uh, it is the, the summation, the, 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 the height I suppose, or the, the, the fulfillment, really, of, of all Christian living. Uh, the Westminster Catechism says, the first line of the Catechism says, what is the purpose of man and the chief end of man is really to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And uh, that's echoed in a whole bunch of scriptures. Psalm 86, 9, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. Isaiah 60, 21, then all your people will be righteous, they will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Uh, and of course, we know 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So uh, the pursuit of the glory of God is really uh, quite vital to Christian living for us as Christians. What do we mean by glory? Um, what, uh, well, it, it means honor, reputation, reverence, uh, dignity, respect, splendor, and when it applies to God, we're talking about the honor of God and His reputation and His splendor and His majesty and His greatness. And what do we mean by the pursuit of the glory of God? Well, we're not saying that we're trying to pursue the glory for ourselves, but we want to pursue the glory of God so that we can give Him glory. As we sang, I will glory in my Redeemer. We want to be able to honor God. We want to be able to give back to Him the glory that He deserves. And that's what we're going to be talking about from um, the psalm that was read for us. Now, why do, we, why do we need to preach? Why do we need to listen to a sermon on this subject? Well, we pray often, God, you know, we want you to be glorified. We want the Lord to be lifted up. We want Him to be glorified in our lives and we want to glorify Him. And what does that mean? What does that actually look like? What does the glory of God look like in our lives? What does it mean for God to be glorious anyway? And these are some things that, uh, that we're going to be looking at in this Psalm uh, 115. Uh, as I was doing a bit of study, and, and Chad shared some study notes of his from, his, uh, from, from university, and um, it, this Psalm is actually uh, a part of the Hallel which is the Jewish um, songs of praise from 113 to 118. 
And um, they sang this at festival times, at feasts, and perhaps even during the Passover. And Jesus might have sung this on the night that he was betrayed, along with the disciples. And how it was usually sung was the priests would sing this, they would sing one verse, and then the, either the people would repeat that same verse, or uh, they'd just respond with a hallelujah. So it was very much part of Jewish culture, um, and these um, five psalms, of which this is the fifth, um, or the, th- the third actually, Psalm 115, uh, is a song of praise. It's also known as the Egyptian Hallel because it was chanted in the temple whilst the lambs were being sacrificed. So again, it, it's, it's a psalm that reminds us of the Passover, of, of the journey of Israel and the birth of Israel from captivity into freedom as brought by the Lord. The structure of the psalm, uh, it, it's broken into five sections, and we'll be looking at those five sections in some detail as it pertains to the glory of God. Um, and it's, so it's verse 1 and 2 is one section. We've got uh, verse 3 to verse 8 as the second, verse 9 to 11, 12 to 15, and 16 to 18. And uh, pretty much all commentators are, are consistent in this breakup of the psalm, so I'm quite happy that uh, I align with them in that sense. Um, and we'll be, we'll be looking to uh, each of these psalms as to how is God glorified in each of these sections? How can we glorify Him from what we learn in each of these sections? And what does it mean for God to be God? What does it mean for Him to be deserving and worthy of our praise and honor and glory? Just a, a, a bit of a note uh, this is a song, obviously, and it flows really beautiful from one section to the next. So, for example, uh, verse 2 to verse 3 is, is one section to the next. Where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. So, it's a beautiful movement from one idea to the next. Verse 8 to verse 9 is another movement. Uh, Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them, O Israel, trust in the Lord. And then there's another movement in 11 to 12. He is their help and shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. Verse 15 to verse 16, maker of heaven and earth, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord. So we see these wonderful little segues in between different sections of of the verse, of, of the psalm, and it will just sort of help us to understand it a bit better. Why is the psalmist saying what he's saying? Why is he moving in the way that he is moving? It is a psalm of contrasts. Uh, we see um, us, or is not to us, O Lord, and us is Israel, obviously. And then you have the nations. So not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. Why should the nations say, where is their God? So there's a contrast between Israel and the nations. The King James says the heathen. Uh, there's another contrast between the Lord who is living and idols who are dead. Another contrast between uh, the dead and the living at the end. The dead do not praise the Lord, but for us... We will bless the Lord for now, from now and forevermore. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of contrasts in the psalm, and understanding these contrasts is the key to understanding the psalm and therefore understanding how we are to give glory to God. And there's, uh, So those are the characters as well, Israel and the nations, the Lord and the idols, the dead and the living, and of course there's the house of Aaron, and that's the leadership of Israel. That's the priesthood. Those are the people that led the nation. And then there's you who fear the Lord. And that, that, is, uh, that is to mean, so you have Israel, you have the Aaronic priesthood, and you who fear the Lord. These are people from other nations who came in and trusted in Jehovah. These are other people who were not Jewish by descent, but who expressed faith 
uh, in Jehovah and followed the way of, that he proposed uh, and commanded for his people to live. So these are people from other nations who are coming and bringing themselves under the Mosaic law uh, so that they can live as God's people. So with that in mind, with that breakdown uh, in mind, just let's look at the first section. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? Um, it's a, it, it, the psalmist starts off with a prayer. I, I find it quite interesting with the psalm because I've never really read another psalm that starts off in this way. Not to us. It starts off almost like a negative. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Uh, there's, a, there's a plea for God to act, and how should God act? He should act by giving glory to his name. Uh, as we said, what does glory mean? It means respect and reverence and, and uh, reputation. It, it means honor and dignity and splendor. Um, and what does name mean? Name means the character of God, the sum total of who he is, the, his reputation. And so the prayer of the psalmist is, don't give honor and dignity to me or to us as a nation. Give honor and dignity and splendor to your reputation. And so I want to say that we glorify God as our first point by having a concern for his reputation. Why should the nations say, where is their God? The psalmist is concerned that the nations or the heathen are mocking because they can't see Israel's God. Why can't they see Israel's God? Because their own gods are idols. Their own gods are, are formed in, in some sort of shape and form that is visible, but the God of Israel is invisible. Where is, where is this God? He doesn't seem to be helping Israel. He seems to have forgotten them. And so the nations are mocking and saying, where is your God? Our God is here. Here's his temple. You can see him. He's seated, he's seated in his temple. Where is your God? The psalmist wants God to act for Israel, but, but in a way that it is not for Israel's sake, but for the sake of his name. The psalmist is jealous for God's reputation that it is not smeared, that it is not mocked and disrespected by the nations. God, please act because I'm concerned about how people think about you. God, please act because I, I don't like the way they mock. I don't like the way they scoff. I don't like the way that they are treating you as if you were nothing. I don't like the way in which people are talking about you that fails to recognize who you are. Is that how we pray? Are our prayers motivated by a concern for the reputation of the living God? Don't make me look good. Make yourself look good. Don't do this for me. Don't do this for my sake. Do this for your name's sake. Because your name is precious. It's holy. It's not about my reputation, it's about yours. It's about how people see you. I don't care how people see me, I don't care how people misunderstand me, I don't care how people think of me or if they disrespect me, but it matters to me greatly what people think about you. Well, why should God act? 
Why should he give glory to his name? Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. We see an echo of this in Exodus 34, 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, him being Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The psalmist goes back to the character of God. And we need to, if we understand this, I believe, we understand the psalm. And not only that, we understand how God acts and why God is deserving of glory. Loving kindness, uh, that word refers to God's covenant loyalty. I don't know, some of you may have the word mercy or some of you may have the word kindness. But, and those are right. I mean, uh, uh, the word does have those meanings. But the, the, the true meaning of the word is so deep and rich that there is no English equivalent except to say that it refers to God's covenant loyalty. God's loyalty and his, his determined resoluteness to be faithful to the covenant that he has made. And obviously the psalmist is saying, give glory to your reputation because you are a covenant-keeping God. We are not a covenant-keeping people, but you are a covenant-keeping God. Give glory to your name because of that, so that the nations will not say, where now is your God? Not to us, but to your name. Give glory. What is the covenant? It's obviously the Abrahamic covenant, and, and uh, we read about that, um, in, uh, and Alex referred to that in some measure. What was the covenant? Um, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Uh, And in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. Us sitting here this morning is evidence that God is a covenant-keeping God. We have no access to the Abrahamic covenant except through Christ, through faith. We are the sons and daughters of Abraham by faith. That's what Galatians 3 tells us. And so us being here, we can say, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, give glory, because you are a covenant-keeping God. The nations are mocking all around us. People mock around us. Our friends and family mock us. Where is your God? Well, what's our response? We can definitely respond that God is a covenant-keeping God, and we are part of that covenant through Christ and through faith in Christ. Why else should God act? Because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. What is truth? Jesus says in John 17, your word is truth. There is no other standard. There is no other truth. There is one truth. There is only one reality, and that's the way God sees it. So glorify your name. Give splendor and weight to your reputation because you are a covenant-keeping God and because you are truth. You are real. There's, There's no other reality Aside from you, glorify your name because of the reality of who you are. It's a really deep, deep concern that the psalmist has. He says, you have saved me. 
I know that you are a covenant-keeping God. I know that I am part of this nation of Israel that you have made a covenant with. I understand that. The people who read this understood that. Do we understand how we are part of God's family? And do we understand how God has been faithful in His covenant, which we have, which we have remembered at the table this morning? And therefore, do we have a concern for God's reputation? Because other people do not treat His name with the respect and dignity that it deserves. So just to summarize, we glorify God out of a deep concern for His reputation because we cannot bear to see Him mocked because of what He has done for us. And not just that, we, because of what He has done for us, we want others to share in that too. Because He has saved us and he has, he has called us out of darkness into His wonderful light, we want others to participate in that too. We want their mocking to turn to praise. We want their scoffing to turn to worship. And therefore, if we are to pursue the glory of God, we need to have a deep and profound concern for his reputation. And that comes from understanding that he is the covenant-keeping God and the true God. Number two, verse three to verse eight. And so we see that movement. Where now is there God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. There's the contrast. But their idols, our God is in the heavens. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. I mean, the psalmist is going to great lengths to just demonstrate how silly it is to worship a form that has no life at all. No hands, no feet. I mean, they have hands, they have feet, they have ears, they have eyes, they have mouths, but it looks like the real deal, but it's fake. It looks like it's got something in there, it looks like it could do something, but actually it can't because it's dead. And so we move from a mocking of the nations to a response to that mocking. Where is your God? Our God is in the heavens. That's why you can't see Him. And so we, the, the psalmist responds with the reality of who God is. The psalmist responds by saying, you're mocking. Let me tell you what you're mocking. Let me show you why your mocking is out of place. And so, we come face to face really with the reality of who God is in this passage. And we come to face to face with who God is by looking at the contrast between who God is and who God is not. The contrast between the idols and the true God. Now, what is, what is an idol? Uh, an idol is the product of man's imagination. It is, it is uh, the product of what man has deemed fit uh, in his own mind to think of, of God and, and to form God in, in his, according to his own pleasure. Israel demonstrated this. Moses is up the mountain. We don't know where this guy is. Let us now make fashion a God and, and they will lead us out. And, oh, let Aaron make us a God. 
here you go, here's a bull. These are the gods who led you out of Egypt. An idol is the product of what man pleases. It has no pleasure in and of itself. It can't do anything. It has no ability. It has no function. Spurgeon says the meanest insect has more power of locomotion than the greatest heathen god. The meanest insect, a cockroach, has more power of movement than the greatest heathen god. And that itself should, 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 should make us realize the sheer silliness and futility of idol worship. And that should make us realize the greatness of our God and how much more that should drive us to true worship. But our God is in the heavens. And here, I, I think this is the greatest stumbling block to faith. He does whatever He pleases. I call it the biggest stumbling block to faith because we come face to face with the absolute sovereignty of God. And here's the definition of sovereignty. I mean, we, we like to say we believe in a sovereign God. We like to say, yes, God is on the throne. He is in control. This is what it means to be sovereign. He does whatever He pleases. The pleasure of God motivates the action of God. To serve the true and living God is to serve the sovereign God. All else is idolatry. Let me say that again. To serve the true and living God is to serve the sovereign God. All else is idolatry. Because that's, that's what the psalmist is saying. He's, he's referring to the sovereignty of God because that is in stark contrast to the utter helplessness of idols. The truth of God is contrasted with the fact that he does whatever he pleases, but an idol can only do whatever man pleases. If it can do anything at all. And so we glorify God in truth by confessing his sovereignty. And let me just unpack this a bit because I think it really brings us again face to face with, with, with the character of God and then hopefully will motivate us to, to deeper worship. I can, I can see three elements or characteristics of sovereignty and you might find more and that's fine. But I think at the very, at the very least, uh, sovereignty has these three characteristics and, and the sovereignty of God has these three characteristics. Number one, he is uncaused and uncreated. Number two, he is uninfluenced. And number three, he is unaccountable. Uncaused, uninfluenced, unaccountable. What does it mean to be uncaused? Well, he reveals that in his name. I am. Lord, who should I, who should I say who's sending me? I am who I am. What does that mean? I am the eternal God. I am the ever-existing God. I am the uncreated, self-existing God. I am who I am. Not I was who I was. I am who I am. I am always in the present. 
I will never stop existing. There was never a time when I did not exist. No one caused me to exist. I exist just through my pleasure. I love how J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says, he defines it this way. He says, he is the reality behind all reality, the underlying cause of all causes and events. The name proclaimed him as self-existent, sovereign, and wholly free from constraint by or dependence on anything outside himself. God is not obliged to anyone because he does not owe his existence to anyone. He is uncreated. He is self-existing. He is the free agent in the universe. Completely independent. No one, he does not owe his existence to anyone. He is not obliged to anyone. Number two, he is uninfluenced. Nobody can force his hand. Nobody can tell him what to do. Nobody can arm twist him. He is unmanipulatable, if there is such a word. Also, nobody can resist his influence. A few verses, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Isaiah 43, 13, even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Job 9, 4, wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? I hope you, you're, you're getting a sense of the, the, um, the incredible nature of God. No one can tell him what to do. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Which idol can say that? Which idol can do that? Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. You better check yourself. Sovereignty is, God is uncaused, and therefore He's not obliged to anyone. He is uninfluenced. No one can resist Him. And lastly, He is unaccountable. He does not answer to anyone. He is not responsible to anyone. He is not answerable or accountable to any person or any standard. There is nothing higher. He is the standard. He is sovereign. That, that's what it means. There's, there's nothing and nobody higher than Him. That is why He is worthy of praise. You are the high and exalted God. That's what we sang. How high is He? To be God is to be unobliged, uninfluenced, and unaccountable. Job 9.12, were He to snatch away, who could restrain Him? 
Who could say to him, what are you doing? Job 33, 12 to 13, Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this, for God is greater than man. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? That's who he is. He does not give an account of all his doings. He's not accountable to you. You are accountable to him. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. This is, this is Nebuchadnezzar. This is the man who a few minutes ago was eating grass. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of the heaven. And among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? What have you done? No one can say that. That's what it means to be sovereign and that's, that's what I feel we don't like the idea of sovereignty because it makes us feel insecure. It makes us feel like, oh, hang on, is this some sort of rogue God? I can't control him. He can do whatever he pleases. What's he going to do? But the psalmist doesn't feel that way. He boasts. Our God is in the heavens. And he does whatever he pleases because he's not an idol. If you want to glorify God, glory in his sovereignty, revel in his sovereignty. What sort of God do you want to serve? Do you want to serve a God who does as he pleases or as you please? Do you want a God who does what seems right to him or what seems right to you? Do you want to worship a God who answers to nobody or do you want a God who is responsible to you? We must come to, the, to terms with the sovereignty of God because we need to understand we are made in his image. He is not made in ours. We do not hold a standard. He is the standard. He does not do as we please, but we must do as He pleases. He is transcendent. He is so high above us, but yet He is amongst us. And in a few weeks, we will celebrate that paradox in Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. God who took upon himself human flesh, who condescended even though he is so far above, even though he is so high, even though he does whatever he pleases, even though he is in the heavens, he comes down. And in Christ, we see that paradox resolved as we read in Isaiah 53 a few minutes ago. Why, Why is this so important for us to understand? Because if we do not understand and do not come to terms with the sovereignty of God, we run the risk of worshipping an idol. Someone or something that cannot do as it pleases, but only as we please. What's more, verse 8. And this is, this is uh, shocking actually. Those who make them will become like them. We, we become what we worship. 
We become what we worship. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. What a great principle. If we worship the true and living God, if we worship Christ, we will become like Him and we have that hope that when we see Him, we will see Him just as He is and we will be like Him. But if we worship idols, then we're going to be dumb. We're going to be dead. We will not be able to glory and glorify the living God if we do not worship Him as He is. Not how we think He is. But as He revealed who He is in His Word. Romans 1 tells us the futility of speculation. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. That's why it's so important to understand and appreciate and come to terms with the sovereignty of God. Because that is the truth of who He is. Is God, is He sovereign in our lives? We, we, we can say, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, we can say, yes, He's on the throne. But do we just pay lip service to it? Or do we actually live our lives as He pleases? Or do we live as we please? I mean, think about that. How, how much of, of an offense is it to do as we please? and say that we worship the God who does as He pleases. Is Christ sovereign in our lives? Is our pleasure found in what He pleases to do? We move on to the third section. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. And then there's the movement to the next section. Oh Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. Don't trust in idols. We're just moving now from a section of the impotence of idols now to what should you do now? Don't trust in idols, trust in the Lord. Hey, Israel, trust in the Lord. Hey, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Not in anything else. I mean, you need to see the contrast. He's not just saying trust in the Lord. He's saying trust in the Lord and don't trust in anyone else. He is their help and their shield. God is glorified when we are convinced that we have no source of help other than Him. I lift up my eyes from where does my help come from? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? From the idols that are in the, in the high places? No. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The God who does as He pleases. And so I want to say that God is glorified when we have confidence in His strength. The, the, the word help, He is their help and their shield. The word help has the idea of being surrounded by all the aid that you need. He is their help and their shield. It doesn't mean that He's just holding out His hand. He surrounds you with all the help that you need. You have no want and the word shield, it's not, it's not a big shield. It's not those big things that cover your whole uh, from head to toe, but just a small uh, round sort of shield that, that's on your arm and for, for direct combat. 
And we see this echoed in Ephesians 6 where what is our shield? Our faith. And so the idea of help and shield tells us that we have all that we need for our security and our defense. Do we trust in the Lord? We had a great time in, in First and Second Kings where we, where we looked at the nation of Israel and, and, and its fall into ruin because it failed to trust in the Lord. And God judged them and sent them into captivity. Why? Because you did not trust in the Lord. You trusted in other countries. You trusted in other kings. You trusted in other gods. You trusted in chariots and armies and horses. You did not trust in the Lord. Are we confident in the Lord's strength? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise me, in spite of this, shall I be confident. Psalm 27. John 16, 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, you have tribulation but take courage. I have overcome the world. Do we trust in the Lord? Do we trust in His strength? Are we confident in His strength? I think the problem is that we trust God for all things spiritual. Yes, yes, He is my, my need, He's my help, he's, he's all of that. But, oh, something happens at work. Ooh, can I trust in the Lord? I'm in financial distress. Can I trust in the Lord? I have illnesses that are undiagnosable. Can I trust in the Lord? I have issues with my family. Can I trust in the Lord? Who do you trust when you are faced with a threat to your well-being or the well-being of your family? Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. You who fear the Lord, that's, that's you and, and me. We're not part of the family really directly uh, Abrahamic, but we're part of it through the, through the covenant and faith. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Moving to the next section, verse 12. Why should we trust in the Lord? Because the Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Calvin says the repetition of the word bless is to mark the uninterrupted stream of his loving kindness. Five times in, 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 that, in that section we have bless, 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 bless. And so the psalmist moves from the past. The Lord has been mindful of us. He grounds his certainty in what God has done and then he moves to certainty of what God will do. He will bless. And so I want to say we glorify God by being certain of His blessings. We understand how He has blessed us. Do we confess that we are blessed? 
Do we, do we think that we are blessed? I mean, if I was to, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how blessed are you? And when we sing, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. But do we consider the fact of being Christian a blessing? This is not about us accepting God. This is about God accepting us. And yes, we took a step of faith. Yes, we did all, all that we had to do. Yes, we confessed faith in Christ. But He has accepted us. We are now part of that covenant. Made so many thousands of years ago with one man. And in you will all the families and nations of the earth be blessed. Do we consider... Have we thought about how blessed we are to be part of the family of God? The psalmist acknowledges that he is blessed because he's part of that covenant. Or we are too. The Lord has been mindful of us. Do you feel sometimes that God has forgotten you? Do you feel lonely and disregarded that's why the nations were scoffing where is their God do you feel that way when doubts arise if God has forgotten you where, where do you go how do you respond can you say like the psalmist says the Lord has been mindful of us he has not forgotten us Ephesians 1 says that He has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. Do we believe that? Do we understand, first of all, the, the meaning of the word blessed? Do we, do we take blessing to mean material prosperity? Or do we take it to understand that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ? What more could we want? We tend to often see blessings in terms of what God has given other people and He sort of left us out. But the text says He will bless the small together with the great. And here's, here's, here's the issue. It's not that God is not mindful of us. It's that we are not mindful of Him. It's not that He has forgotten us. It's we who have forgotten Him because we run after things and, and idols and we run after the things that we think will give us happiness and prosperity and fulfillment. But only God can do that. We don't glorify God by forgetting His blessing or doubting that He has blessed us. We, 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 we glorify God by being certain that He has and He will And so the issue is not, has Christ saved you or, or do you believe that He's coming for you or do you believe that He died for you? The question is, is that enough for you? Is the work of Christ on your behalf, which secures all the blessings in the heavenlies for all eternity, is that enough for you? Because if it is, you will say, yes, the Lord has been mindful of me. He has blessed me. And He will continue to bless me. And so we come to our last point. 
May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. The, me the meaning of this section is understood by two contrasting ideas that we see here. And one is heaven and earth. And so we see the earth, the, the heaven is where God sits and the earth he has given to the sons of men. And the second contrast is uh, what I call the silent and the singing. Those who go down into the grave and cannot praise anymore and those who will bless his name forever. So it's a, it's a contrast between the saved and the unsaved. And so heaven is where God's will is done and will be done and earth is where, mm, I don't know, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray, you know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why is he praying there? Because it's not being done on earth. The earth he has given to the sons of men to be vice regents. That was Adam's mandate to, to rule, have dominion over the earth. And as, as the vice regent, you give God praise and glory and honor for who he is. But man has failed. Heaven is where God's praises are sung. Earth, not so much. And so therefore the psalmist wants to take up that responsibility and he wants to praise God for who he is and saying, look, when we die, sure, we can't praise God anymore, but let's praise Him while we have life. So we glorify God by committing ourselves to His praise. Praise is the prerogative of the living. Because the grave is a place of silence. So no one who goes down into the grave, or it says, nor do any who go down into silence. It's a euphemism for death. So there's a physical aspect to praise. As long as we have life and breath, let us praise. But then there's a spiritual aspect as well. It's a contrast between those who sing forever and those who are silent forever. The psalmist says, look, I'm going... He doesn't say it, but obviously the, the idea is he knows he's going to die, but he's still going to praise forever. And so there's a contrast between those who sing forever and those who are silent forever. The unsaved never praise, but the saved cannot stop praising. The saved are always praising when they are alive, and when they die, they will continue. Are we glorifying God by being committed to His praise? Which category do we fall into? The singing or the silent? Spurgeon puts it beautifully as only he can. He says, our afflictions and depression of spirit shall not cause us to suspend our praises. Neither shall old age and increasing infirmities dampen the celestial fires. Nay, nor shall even death itself cause us to cease from this delightful occupation. 
Do we, do we see God as glorious? Do we see Him as being truly, truly, truly worthy of praise? We glorify Him by committing ourselves to a lifetime of praise regardless of our circumstances. The psalmist says, but as for us, we will bless the Lord when? From this time forth. Now. And forevermore. And so that is what I think it looks like, at least five ways in which we can glorify God. This is how we can pursue the glory of God by having a concern for His reputation. And for us, it would be really the reputation of Christ. Are we concerned for how the name of Christ is treated? We confess the sovereignty of Christ. We embrace His sovereignty because this is what separates Him from false gods. We are confident in His strength. We are certain of His blessing. And we are committed to His praise. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Father, we just want to thank You for showing us a glimpse of who You are through Your Word. Lord, Your Word is truth, and so we trust in this truth that You are indeed who You say You are and who You have revealed Yourself to be. And we just pray, Lord, that that vision that You give us of Yourself through Your Word would really impact our hearts and our lives so that we would live worshipfully in awe and reverence for who you are. We pray that our lives would really hallow your name in our day-to-day -day lives, in our day-to-day -day interactions with those amidst whom you have placed us. We just pray that we would glory in our Redeemer. We just pray that you would give us ability to live for him in a manner that glorifies Him, so that the nations will not mock any longer and say, where is their God? But they can see Him alive in us and will be drawn to Him so that they too can praise forever and ever. We ask all these things in the most glorious and matchless, matchless name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.